Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget. Or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today on the Big Break Software Podcast, I have Don Fabrighi, Jotful.com. Jotful is a software as a service that lets small businesses, small, medium-sized businesses easily create websites so their clients don't need to worry or hire an agency. Don will tell us how she came up with the idea, how she funded the MVP, how she gained her first few customers, and how she was able to navigate her zero to product market fit. How are you today, Don? I am well. Thank you so much, Jordy. Really excited to be here on the show today. Good, great, great. Happy to have you. So why don't you give me a quick intro on who you are and tell me this, the, the core problem that, you're, that Jotful solves for your customers. Absolutely. So I am the founder and CEO of Jotful. And what we do at Jotful is we help small businesses better market themselves online. And very specifically, what we do is we help them get that cornerstone online presence, which is their website. And you're, you're probably already familiar with this, Jordy, but if you're a small business owner, you really, before Jotful, only had two ways to get a website. You could hire an agency to build a website for you, which of course everybody wants to do because it's full service, but it's also really expensive. And when we talk to small business owners, they consistently tell us they get quoted the exact same amount, which is $5,000. It must be the standard agency price for small businesses. And that's just too expensive for most of these companies. Paying five grand when you're just getting started or you're just running a small business is too much. So the alternative is that you could build your own website. And I'm sure you're familiar with all the do-it-yourself software out there like Wix and Squarespace and so forth. And that software is great if you want to build your own website and you have kind of that combination of design and technical skills and online marketing expertise that would allow you to build a website that you could be confident would be effective for your business. So our customers are this like group of small businesses that were just really stuck in the middle where one option was too expensive and the other option was something that they weren't confident was going to deliver them what they needed. So what we do at Jotful is we call it a do it together website. We take all the content from our customers, so all their text and their images, we actually assemble and launch their website for them and we help them maintain it on an ongoing basis. Okay, okay, perfect. I, I totally understand the, the concept. It sounds to me it's not it's not completely software as a service. There's a software as a service component with a, mm -hmm. with a, a, like a, a service element behind the scenes. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's basically like onboarding. So uh, are okay. you familiar with Gusto, Jordy? No, I'm not actually. So they do 
they're pay, they're a payroll software company. We actually use them at Jobful. They're pretty common for SaaS businesses to use Gusto to handle all of their payroll. Okay. It's like, they're pretty so it's similar. Like a, like a zero or something like that? Yeah, like a zero or something, right? And okay. what they do is they take from the, the business owner all of the stuff that they need for filing with the state, right? All of the documents that you need, all this kind of information. They put it into their software on you know on your behalf so they onboard you and then after that you sort of just work through their software jotville is very similar we take all the content from our customers website we onboard them by building the website for them on our software and then we it's just a standard SaaS product after that okay so it's just essentially just onboarding mm-hmm. and i did take a look at your pricing so it's, it seems like you have a monthly that i imagine in the beginning won't pay for it because it's there's probably quite a bit of of heavy lifting that you do during the onboarding is there a certain like a minimum contract that they need to do for the first year just so that you can ensure that you make your your investment back no there's not so we do charge a setup fee of um 99 per page and that okay. helps you know cover okay recover so that's the, cost the sort of that- on, onboarding Cost exactly then. the okay. onboarding cost and then after that it's 59 dollars a month what we're primarily trying to recover through that 59 dollars a month is our is our cac right our customer acquisition cost okay in okay, the beginning great. and there are no there are no contracts you could choose a monthly or yearly billing cycle okay that's pretty compelling i, I have to yeah. admit it's a nice it's a sounds like a great product you know for so, most of our for most of our customers they have the average is four page websites so yeah, that's what I was thinking. It, and, you know, there's like exactly. an about us. There's a contact page. There's a there's a landing page, and maybe there's a services page. That's it. That's right. Yeah. So it's so it's four hundred bucks to get your website built compared to five grand from an agency. It's very compelling. Yeah, that's that's really compelling. And I imagine that you have a like your essentially your your captive audience or your market is like hundreds of thousands of businesses. Correct. Is that correct? So yeah. our customers tend to have five or fewer employees, and a lot of our customers are self-employed. So they're really micro businesses. Yeah. Okay. Great. So totally get the the concept. Sounds like a great uh, sounds like a great product. Why don't you walk me through how you what how you got to come up with this product? Yeah. Yeah. So. I come from a family of business owners. In fact, my parents, between the two of them, currently own five small businesses. So, Jordi, I have a, I have an undergraduate degree in graphic design. I started my career as a graphic designer, and then I went into marketing and have an MBA. And so you can imagine with that kind of background and parents with five small businesses that I've been doing a lot of free design and marketing work for a very long time for them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was managing my mother's website for her bridal shop Mm -hmm. and i just kept thinking why is it that it is so hard for a business owner like my mom to have a website that her daughter has to do it and you know i have a life too so you know it would cause some friction between us where she would need an update to her website but i would you know have something going on with my daughter or whatever Mm -hmm. and i just thought you know there's no no really good solution for her there's no way she's going to do this herself none at all but she can't afford to hire an agency or designer. And so she's, re- you know, relying on me. And I'm not very reliable, right, you know, when I'm just doing it for free personally. And I thought, well, there's got to, you know, it's the classic entrepreneur experience, right? There's got to be a better way. And so 
I actually created a prototype, which I just built on uh, an existing content management system. So Jotful Software is technically a CMS or content management system. I built this on an existing content management system. Can you and tell I us went, which one? Uh, WordPress. I built it on WordPress. Okay, it's a WordPress. So it's like, is it like, okay, but they're totally familiar with WordPress. So the prototype before okay. we built our uh, product. Okay, 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 perfect. Right, so yeah. Jotful is a content management system, just like WordPress is a content management system and Wix mm -hmm. is. But before we actually built the product, I took an existing product and said, what if I offered them this deal and said, I could build a website for you. It, it, at the beginning, we were doing it for no setup fee and I would just build it for a monthly fee, right? I basically mm -hmm. just wanted to test the value proposition. And if yeah. the value proposition worked, well, then I would invest in actually building the product. Okay. So, you know, my mother owned a bridal shop and every six months, she would go to this event called the National Bridal Market in Chicago. And this mm -hmm. is where bridal shop owners go to choose the dresses they're going to carry in their stores for the next six months. So yeah. I, I got a booth at this show. And if you can imagine, I had this booth with just a little table and basically a sign that said, I can make you a website. And next to me were just rows and rows of booths with these big frilly dresses. It was, it was pretty hilarious. Yeah. I had emailed before the event, I, because I was a, you know, an exhibitor, mm -hmm. I got the list of the companies that were attending and I went to every single one of those bridal shops websites. It was about four or 500 websites I visited, picked all of them who either had no website at all or who had a, a bad website that could use some work, emailed every single one of them personally and was able to get some of them to convince some of them to come see a free website I had built for them at the show. I would reveal it to them at the show and actually signed up the first two customers right there. And you can imagine Georgie, you know, taking that first credit card, yeah, <laughs> this sort of yeah. like trying not to smile, but you're really thinking, wow, this isn't even a real product yet. It's just like a little yeah. you know, theme I built on WordPress. And I'm basically just testing the value proposition, but guess what? I have this customer who's a complete stranger. It's not my mom. Yeah. So that's how we got that's how I got the first few customers, actually. I think we got a couple at the show and I got a couple more after the show. And that was end of September of 2017. And by November, I had found an engineer and hired an engineer to, to build the product. So I do a lot of the, um, the kind of, I do the product management and, and a lot of the kind of architecture. And then uh -huh. he does all of the engineering and development. So he started in November of 2018 and we, uh, yeah, November, November 2017, we launched the product of March by March of 2018. Okay, that's that's a great story. I just want to break that down because there was a lot of hustle in there. So you went through the 500 emails. How many did you find? Do you, I mean, not exact numbers, but do you remember, recall about how many of them had a bad website or no website? Yeah, about half of them either had no website or a bad website, bad which website. is great market research in and of itself. Yeah. Right? So, so you, you mm -hmm. knew like even with bridal with just um, these bridal shops that you that you had essentially you could just niche it out and just do this for because for essentially the websites are going to be very similar, right? And you have all these stock images that you can keep reusing. And mm -hmm. if you focus on that, it would make your make your life a lot easier rather than you know, having to do a, like, say, an automobile repair shop. And then, you know, another one is like a flower shop or something. If you focused on that, is that essentially how you rolled out the business in the beginning? You know, was just... That's a really, really smart question. So 
I would say, you know, in the beginning, my focus was really on figuring out whether or not we had a value proposition that resonated. And once I figured that out, then it was about building a product and making sure the product worked. And then after that, it was really about figuring out, you know, who that initial target niche was going to be for us. And I assumed like you would, you know, that it was going to be bridal shops because that's where we had started. And our first four customers, at least, were all bridal shops. Mm -hmm. And we actually, at that point, so this is now summer of 2018, we were accepted into an accelerator program, which is the the Desai Accelerator, yeah. which is affiliated with the University of Michigan. So actually, the University of Michigan is now the largest investor in our business. And when we started that accelerator program, that was a big focus was figuring out who this niche was going to be. Uh-huh. And we started by assuming it was going to be bridal shops. And we discovered that, you know, there were reasons why maybe it, it wasn't the ideal niche for us, maybe we could look at some adjacent niches. And then it just started this process of going through industries. We looked at bridal shops, we tried salons, we tried law firms, we just kept kind of going through all of these different industry niches. And I think the really big revelation for us, it took us at least a year to figure this out, was that our niche is not by industry. Our Uh niche is actually by company size. It's ah, companies. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. Which yes. makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes it's sense, companies yeah. with five or fewer employees. And one key point here, and this is something that we especially learn by targeting the restaurant industry, is that they cannot have a, a marketing person on staff. Because the minute okay. you have a marketing person on staff, that marketer is going to want to get in and, you know, be making constant updates and being doing, you know, going to want to do a lot of custom stuff, going to want to build the website themselves, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. really the people who are smaller than that. And once we realized that we needed to think horizontally instead of vertically about our niche, it changed everything for us. It was a huge milestone on the path to product market fit for us. Okay. Let's break down first. Why did it not work with the with the bridal with the bridal shops. Yeah. So that we discovered that there were some industries where the business owners were fundamentally creatives, right? They're really really creative people. We saw this with salons, we saw this with bridal shops, and a lot of them had a hard time letting somebody else build the website for them. And so we would, or they wanted something extremely custom. And so we would very often refer them to an agency. They would want to work with us because we were more affordable. They liked the price, but they wanted more customizations. And you were like, this is not how the service works. Exactly, exactly. And then there were other industries. um, And we saw this with legal services where, you know, they would be happy. That was a perfect fit for us, right? Everything was great. But then we would never get any referrals from that industry. So there were some industries which were more inclined to refer us to other people and then others that weren't. And we also discovered that people were less inclined to refer us to other people in their industry because they thought of us as a great secret that they didn't want to share. <laughs> oh, boy. If they it's thought not that exactly we... a viral product then. Exactly. Because <laughs> if they thought that we were only focused on their industry, why would they tell us, why would they tell their competitors about us, right? And so they wouldn't talk yeah. about it. But once they learned that we can work with any industry, as long as it's a small company size, then the referrals started coming in. Okay, that's good. But but as long as they were in a different niche, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. we'll have, for example, a law firm will refer us to a life coach because they okay, know... Yeah. They're similar in size, but they're not competitive at all. That's not a big deal for us. But we never had a law firm refer us to another law firm. It didn't happen. Okay. 
that's interesting. We'll get into the marketing and how you figure out how you market now. But I do want to hear about how you built the MVP. So uh, let's go back to the engineer. When you, you, you built this theme, you got four customers. And tell me about like when you decided to go find the engineer. Like what, like what was your budget? How were you going to pay for this? What, what was going on in your life? Did you have another job? Was this a side? Was this a side gig for you? What was what was your situation at that time in two thousand, in the autumn of two thousand seventeen? So I was actually between jobs, and I was considering a full time opportunity at a company that is going to go public soon. So that would have been a great CMO position for me. But I ended up starting this business instead. Those were the two options on the table: start this business Quickly, or do a- that. Any regrets? No. no, I'll tell you, there were more regrets in the beginning. Because I thought, gosh, you know, that was a that was that pretty was much a, a sure job, thing, yeah. and I knew from talking to the CEO that this was a sh- this was a sure thing. Why did Why but, did you not take the job? That's interesting because you were looking, yeah. you were between jobs. Now you have this, you know, it sounds like a kind of a risky thing. I mean, you're you're going off on your own. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to do that? You know, my my mentor was really critical in this. So I I have a mentor that I meet up at, in a room in a library with some frequency. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, booked a room in the library and we sat down and we were just chit-chatting. And I was telling him about, you know, these initial tests I had. I had at this point been to the National Bridal Market. I had my first customers. I had been testing this. And then I told him about this job opportunity, which was in Chicago, so it would require me to move. And I, I explained it to him and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to go for that, right? And at this point, I only had a handful of customers, so I could, you know, transition them to something. It would be okay. Yeah. And, and he just looked at me and just with this puzzled look on his face. And he said, but Dawn, you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> and you know, Jordy, this is not, this is actually the second business I've started. And so mm-hmm. I knew what I would be getting myself into if I started another business. So I just put my head on the table and said, I know yeah. <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I know it too, like I've been in situations as well where, you know, sometimes I'm like, why do I do this? You know, you know, it'd be so easy just to go out and find a nice, safe, secure job. I just come home at night and I I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, deep down, we know if you know you're an entrepreneur, you just know that that's there's so many. It's just a lifestyle thing that you just would never give it up. You know, it's just. I like the freedom to be able to work on different things if I want to. I can change direction. I don't answer to anyone. Uh, there's just so many. Ben- what are some of the things that you like about being an entrepreneur? My number one favorite thing about being an entrepreneur is the ability to hire the team you really want to work with. Oh, my goodness. I listen to people all the time talk about the challenges they face with their colleagues or the struggles they have with their employees that they, you know, were sort of the team that they kind of acquired when they joined a company. And I think I have none of those challenges, none. We have an amazing team and every single day I wake up happy to work with them. And I think that is absolutely the biggest benefit of being an entrepreneur. That's great. That's a great one. It sounds like you enjoy the sort of building the company culture aspect of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm fundamentally a builder. I loved building the product when we were in the building the product stage. I loved building the go-to-market engine when we were in that stage. And we we sort of are, but we're starting to transition out of that into mm -hmm. now the building the team stage. And I love 
all of those. And I know that there are a lot of founders who really, really love the very beginning, like just the, just the product piece. And I would describe that maybe more as more as people who really love kind of the engineering of it. I love the building of it. And so I love every single stage because I love the building in that stage. You know, I spent the entire day yesterday, Jordy, the entire day working on chatbot scripts for the little website chat the entire mm -hmm. day. And yeah. To work on a chatbot script requires you to think about what are the top questions that customers or non-customers who are just prospects visiting your website, what questions, what are the top questions that they ask? And some of that you get from data and then some of that you just kind of know qualitatively from having spoken with a lot of customers and prospects. And I spent the entire day on that and I just kept thinking, wow, I love this. I ended the day, launched the chatbot, and now you feel like you have this sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. And, and as you say, you're right, though, it's not like you're just building the product because each thing that you're doing, you're building something, you're either maybe mm -hmm. you're building your SOPs, or you're building your marketing plan, or you're building your hiring plan. It's all uh, an aspect of building. Yes. So tell me about the hiring the uh, the first engineer because it sounds to me like this sort of MVP went to you went and found this engineer he built it and then you went to an accelerator. I want to know why, if you had the product, what, you know, like, why did you need funds for an accelerator? Yeah. So the engineer that we hired, I chose him specifically because he had built a content management system in the past and for a small business owner. He is he, built is it, he local to you or how did you know him? He's local. Yeah. Local. Sorry. I'm, are you in Minnesota or where? I'm are in you? Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So he's based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I met him for a coffee. And he said, I really understand the problem that your customers face because my uncle needed a website and, you know, like a good engineer, he refused to give his uncle some off the shelf product. He actually built a content management system from scratch for his uncle to use, which is just classic engineering mm -hmm. problem. And what solving. stack, what stack is, is, he, what stack are you guys? Like yeah, so technology? we use Amazon Web Service or AWS for um, for all of our hosting. So all of our customers' websites are hosted on AWS, and then we have a you know your typical sort of Apache PHP. Okay, so it's PHP. It's uh huh. PHP. And then the front okay. end is all JavaScript, HTML, you know, classic. Okay. Okay. PHP and in, in, in probably PHP in the front end too, or is it it's JavaScript and HTML in the front end? Okay. Perfect. Okay. And so, so the engineer built it. He, did he take what he had built for his uncle and, and just sort of clone it for you and then kind of build off of that? Or what was the, what was the process? No. And this was actually the, the second thing I liked about him when I met him. So the first thing was that he understood the customer problem because a lot of engineers I talked to said, you know, who cares? Why don't they just use Wix or why don't they just use something off the shelf? So he understood why these customers weren't just using do-it-yourself software. But the second thing was that he understood the difference between engineering and product management because he said, you know, I built him this content management system, but it turns out he can't really use it. I didn't really take into account this prop, this thing and this behavior of his and this other thing, right? And I said, oh, well, I understand those things because I'm coming at this from the market, from the market perspective, right? You're coming at this from the engineering perspective. Why don't we meet in the middle and work on the product management? And so that's how we ultimately built it is that I would, you know, come up with the, I would do a lot of the product management, you know, these are the specifications and then, you know, talk to him about technically how we make that happen, whether we can make that happen. And that's how we've been working since then. So we've been working together since November of 2017. So for, you know, four years at this point, it's been great. 
is he is he now a CTO or or what's his, where where is he what position is he in the company? No, I mean we don't have a defined. We're still at a stage where we don't have specific titles like that. But he is the engineering person. Okay. I think you, you know on the sort of title thing because I know a lot of startups kind of circle around titles for a while. Mm. I'm a big believer in not assigning very specific titles like vice president or chief anything too mm -hmm. early on because mm -hmm. you don't want to run into the challenge where maybe the employee doesn't scale to the next stage of your business and then mm -hmm. you have the issue of needing to bring somebody in above them but you don't have a title available and you have to downgrade the minute you have to downgrade somebody's title they're gone it's just it's just really yeah. hard to keep somebody no, at that point so we tend to do things like head of <laughs> yeah. in order to get around that and you know eventually yeah. we'll start to have formal titles but this is to keep us you know keep us flexible yeah no that that's that that uh, makes sense i i think maybe um the e-myth guy and andrew gino wickman of eos entrepreneur Entrepre operating system would maybe mm -hmm. say that there's at some point where you have to move to that level and it sounds like maybe you're sort of transitioning now to that to, to that level right. um what is it Andrew that's right Gerber but you don't want to go too early no I, I, I think agree. That's, that's fair. yeah that's one of the key things is it makes sense to work on stuff one stage ahead of when it's needed to get started i mean so for example we had a blog before we had the product we were mm -hmm. starting to build that audience and you know starting to create our voice before we had the product but we didn't invest too much time in it because our focus mm -hmm. was on the product I yeah. think it makes sense to start thinking about those things ahead of time, but to remain focused on the near-term goals. Mm -hmm. Okay. How much was the MVP, by the way? How much did it cost? I don't know off the top of my head. I funded the initial MVP out of savings, and then we entered the accelerator. And with the accelerator, we got 25000 in cash from, again, the University of Michigan with an option that they could invest another 25000 if they liked the progress that we had made. They chose to exercise that option, so we have 50000 out of the accelerator. I used that cash to make my first hire. And the first hire that I made is somebody who had two things that were really critical. Number one, first full-time hire, by the way, the engineer came in as a 1099. Mm -hmm. um, two critical things. Number one, she had some experience in sales. She came mm -hmm. from nonprofit. So it's called, oh, I forget what it's called. It's, um, it's like fundraising, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that fundraising is sales. It's just a fan. It's just a different name. Yeah, for of course, it. you're trying to you're trying to get money from people. I mean, there's no harder sale than that. Exactly. Relationship building. I mean, th this. And then the second piece is that she had worked in early stage companies as their head of people operations. And I knew from the very beginning that this business was going to require a lot of people. I mean, fundamentally, it takes people to actually do the onboarding. It's just that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that we had that DNA in the business from the very, very beginning. And so she came in and initially, you know, having no people to operate, she had been focusing on sales. Now she's really making that transition. So we're starting to hire salespeople now under her and she will be transitioning out and she'll be focused on managing the team. Okay, that makes sense. So she, she, it sounds like she's essentially like operations. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, but not 
people, so people operations, I want to separate um, operations from, you know, the systems aspect versus the people mm-hmm. aspect. In fact, I just got an email from her this morning and she pointed out that she's working on all the training for hiring new people. And she said, I just, re- I just recall going through this process, how much I prefer the people stuff and less the documentation and training mm-hmm. part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how but is that's the- my strength, so that's fine. Yeah. How was the accelerator experience for you? How much equity did you have to give up for that 50? It's on a convertible note. So, okay. yeah, okay. so it's on a convertible note. So it's not a specific equity amount. Um, you know, it's funny because everything in startup world has changed so much in the past few years from a funding perspective. It's, it's astonishing to me how much early stage fundraising has changed in these past few years. And one of the things is that it used to be that a company would just go through one accelerator if they were able to get in, right? You know, the mm-hmm. likelihood that you got into an accelerator when we got in was uh, 3% of all startups would get in generally to an accelerator program. Mm-hmm. Now it's pretty common for companies to go through multiple accelerator programs. And there are accelerators specifically timed to the stage or the, that you're in or the problem you're, you're trying to work through. So that accelerator was very early stage. Um, mm-hmm. very focused on like sort of getting you off the ground. And that was perfect for us. We're actually considering even working with an accelerator that's specifically focused on building out a sales team. I mean, that's perfectly timed for us right now. So, okay. So you're thinking yeah. about doing that. You've only been in one accelerator at this point though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and so at that time you didn't need any, you didn't need any funds for the, uh, building the product. You considered the, the MVP when it was done. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that if you were doing something with a U.S. developer, um, you know, for say th- four months or something, it was probably in the thirty to forty thousand range. Yep. Does that sound about right? Yep, it does. Okay, okay. So so thirty forty thousand, which to me is a very reasonable price to to get going on your first MVP. Um, was it sort of was it like really rough? I mean, did it had a payment gateway and everything. So. It was a complete MVP, meaning that we yeah. were able to transition our existing customers onto it seamlessly so mm-hmm. that they only got the, they, they didn't lose anything, but they got the benefit of being on our product, which is built in such a way that it's very easy for business owners to keep their website updated, which they couldn't do in WordPress. None of them could get in the back end of WordPress. Oh, because so, they were not, so you made it even easier than WordPress to... Oh, yes. So in our in our product, so let's say a customer wants to change some language on their website. Mm-hmm. They actually, with Jotful, they just go to their website, they type slash edit after the URL, and they're presented with a little pop-up um, password login. When they log in, all they see is their website. Jotful has no toolbars. Oh, There's really? literally okay, so it's just no like, like going work. into a Word doc or something like that. Yes. And, and, okay. It is as easy to update as sending an email. They go in, they click on the words they want to change, they type over them, and it's live on the internet. And this is something that none of them could ever do in, in WordPress. Okay. And so we never even gave them, I, I was, you know, I never even gave them backend access to WordPress. There was no way they were ever going to do it. But... Because I never gave them back in access, every time they wanted to make a change, that change just came to me via email. So I got to learn the kinds of changes they wanted to see so that when we built our own product, we got to make sure that the kinds of changes that were most common were going to be really intuitive and self-service. 
Are you using your product for your own website? No, we're not. That's You're a really not. great Why? question. So there's a big in in this industry. There's a, you know everybody talks about dog food, eating your own dog food, right? Which means mm -hmm. using your own product. We mm -hmm. don't. And the reason why is because we are not our target market. Okay, fair we enough. We yeah. are not small, really small business. We are actually a scale, you know, we're a startup that's looking to scale. So we're going to be a scale up. That's okay. a fundamentally different customer. We would never target Jotful as a prospect for our business. Right. And so I knew if we built our product on Jotful, that meant that we would inevitably start building for ourselves and yeah. not build for our market. So okay. we don't we don't build for ourselves. We build for our market. Okay, good answer. Good answer. Um, okay, so you launched the MVP, and how was how was you? It, tell me about this year of of when you were finding out that that it wasn't the, wasn't a niche that you needed. It was more a company size. Like, how, tell, walk me yeah. through how you f figured out that problem. Yeah. So, Jordy, uh, f first, I would say that. You know, there's this uh, question about how do you define product market fit? And I think, you know, in the original Mark Andreessen essay, he described it as two things. Number one, you know that your product works for your market and they're happy and they're satisfied and all of that. But number two, you also have this line of new prospects coming to you demanding the, the product. And I actually think that those are two very separate steps. And I like what um, David Scott has really defined as being two separate stages. So, so first there's that search for product market fit, which is proving that you have a product that satisfies your market. Some people describe it as if you, if you were to survey your, your customers, that 40% of them would be really, really devastated if you cease to exist right? Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. that's one thing. And then the second thing, the second stage is the search for a repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth model. And I actually think that those are two very different things. And that second stage is where you start to get the lineup of, of prospective customers. Um, so the search, our search for product market fit actually was really brief and oddly. And I think that that is just because we had this really deep understanding of our market and what they needed. And so we had exceptionally low churn rates, for example, from the very beginning. Are we you negative get, now? You're, is it negative churn rates? Well, we, we track um, customer churn, not net, net dollar, but on a customer churn perspective, our current um, customer churn is around 1.4% monthly. That's great, yeah. And typically for a small business, you'd see be a small business market, you'd see between three and 5%. So we're about half of what you would typically see in mm -hmm. for our market, which is astonishing. And so we had low customer churn. We would get kind of like fan mail from our customers, right? Just out of the blue, posting about us on social. So we knew... We're confident that we had this product market fit, but we struggled for about three years figuring out how to get our product to market, how to talk about it, how to make sure people could under how to reach our audience, how to make sure people understood how we were different from hiring an agency or building it yourself. I mean, this was really a three-year process. And the first stage was what I described earlier, which was figuring out which niche we were going to target. And we did spin our wheels a lot for a long time, kind of going down these industry-focused niches before we figured out this horizontal by company size. And then we really started to figure out, well, what channel are we going to use to reach this, 
this market. And oh my gosh, we tried everything. I mean, it w- and because I, I have a marketing background and this was the most important thing in the company, I was every single day focused on solving this, cracking this. How are we going to reach this, this audience? And we tried things like outbound email programs. We, oh my gosh, there's like nothing we didn't try. We tried social media advertising, social media content marketing, right? We have a blog, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And eventually what happened is before the pandemic started, I would go out and speak at events and mm-hmm. I would, you know, like the National Entrepreneurs Conference. And I would speak to an audience primarily comprised of our target market. What and would you would speak a, about? Like what, I would give a talk, almost always the same talk called mm-hmm. how to get your small business online. And it is just 101, how to get yeah. a website okay. for people who yeah. just have never done it before. Like how to buy a domain and you know, yeah. Those sorts of, yeah. You're gonna need okay. a domain, you're gonna need a web host, you're gonna need a CMS. This is what these things are. This is how mm-hmm. you get them. And at the end of the talk, I would walk them through kind of a decision tree. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, if, you have, if your business has these kinds of properties, then you're gonna want to do something like this if your business has these properties. And eventually I would get to a place where I would say, okay, if if you haven't sorted out into any one of those, probably what you need is a do it together website like Jotful. And let me tell you a little bit about Jotful, right? And it wasn't mm-hmm. a selling pitch for Jotful. It was a, let me help you figure out the best way to get your website built. And yeah. for some of you, the answer is going to be Jotful. And inevitably, every time I would give this talk, we would get some customers. But mm-hmm. the thing is, this wasn't scalable. No, so, no. Not at all, right? But we get these little spurts of customers. So when mm-hmm. the pandemic started, I said, well, hmm, all of those events are canceled. I need to make up that, you know, those little spurts of customers somehow. What if I did them as virtual events? And then I thought, well, so I tried that for a while and then said, well, what if I just recorded me giving this session? Because I am literally giving the same talk over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. What if I recorded it and we put it online? Oh, wait a minute. What if we took that recording and we turned it into an ad and we published the ad on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that was ultimately what ended up working for us. So we have now, we've been iterating on this for about six months now, mm-hmm. these YouTube ads. So we're iterating on the ad, we're iterating on the landing page. We've now hired an agency that specializes only in direct response video advertising on YouTube and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And we've hired another agency who specializes in conversion rate optimization on landing pages. And we're using that to really um, get the cost down from a per customer perspective. And once uh-huh. we can drive that acquisition cost down, then we begin to scale. So we are about three months out from, um, from really, really scaling. Okay, so, so walk me through the uh, metrics there. I'm, I'm with you on all the direct response. Um, yeah. So, so what's your lifetime value? What's your lifetime value for Wait, for a customer? Wait, let's let's right back now? up just one second because I think a lot of people don't know the difference between direct response and brand brand advertising, and I think it's worth touching on for a second. Sure. So, yeah. so brand advertising is when you see a Coca-Cola Coca-Cola commercial on television, you might think, oh, you know, I could go for that. Or the next time you're in the store and you see Coke and Pepsi up next to each other, you kind of lean maybe toward the Coke. It's maybe something, you know, subconscious, but there's nothing in that ad that made you buy a Coke in that moment. 
direct yeah. response is specifically focused on the call to action afterwards. So specifically focused on, you know, getting them to take action in the moment. So our ads are really me giving that talk, talking mm -hmm. about the three ways you can get a website. And it says, if the best way for you is Jotful, click here to learn more. And it takes them to the landing page. And from there they enter the, the sales process. So just to kind of explain those two, because I think it's a pretty key point. Yeah, that's that's good. And if anyone's interested in direct response marketing, there's some great, like Jay Abraham and um, who are some of the other, like uh, Sam Ovens is really good at it. Uh, yeah. Um, I heard in one of your podcasts, you talked about... Um, Dan Kennedy is a copywriter. Yep, Dan. Yep, Dan. Dan Kennedy, Gary Gary Halpert is really is really good as well. Um, yeah, yeah. These guys, are copywriters as well, really good copywriters. But obviously, copywriting is going to go hand in hand with direct response because you you're essentially yes. just trying to get them to say, you know, raise their hand and say, mm -hmm. yes, me, I'm interested. Um, you've got me, you know, that sort of thing. So, yep. um, that so so. Yeah, exactly. So, so what are your metrics now for the life? Because, you know, it sounds to me like most of the time when I think about paid traffic, I'm like, you got to have a lifetime value of 1500. You know, that's been my experience. I know some mm -hmm. guys that can get it to work at 400. It's tough, though. So I think, okay, cold paid traffic, cold traffic, it's going to work at 1500 and above. Um, you know, because you have some leeway to kind of experiment and, and, and you know, have kind of 3x your ad spend. Yep. So I imagine you're not there. Uh, oh, we maybe are you there. are. Oh, you are. are. Okay. Okay. And here's, okay. here's why. So it would be the case that 15, our product starts at $59 a month that it would be hard to get to 1500. However, keep in mind that we also have the one-time setup fee in the beginning. We, yeah, we have okay. an attractive gross margin. We have software level gross margins, but then also we have a long customer lifetime. This is where customer churn becomes That's where the really, churn comes in really important. important. Okay. Yep. Yeah. We have a long customer lifetime. So this gets our lifetime value up to around $2,500. And that allows us to do um, paid marketing. Okay. And okay. I, would, I would also add, I mentioned before that so much has changed in the past few years in terms of how you finance your business. And one of the really huge things that's happened and is going is is proving to be really critical for us is that there are now companies out there that do factoring of your monthly recurring revenues are you familiar with these companies like capchase or pipe a pipe no but it's, no i'm not T tell so, me about it okay so we have our customers can choose monthly or yearly billing with us Typically mm -hmm. for a subscription business, for yearly billing, you need to give your customers some kind of incentive to get them to sign up for that, right? Mm -hmm. Typically you're gonna give them around, you know, 15 to 20% off of their subscription if they go for yearly billing. That means you're basically financing your customer, right? You're financing them so that you get that cash up front because of course you wanna reinvest that cash in customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. What's happened now is that some companies have sprung up that have noticed, wait a minute, you know, uh, software subscription businesses look a lot like um, annuities in that they have these regular recurring revenues. And if they have mm -hmm. a low churn rate, this really is kind of like buying into an annuity. Why don't we help finance them? So now at a, you know, at a company like ours, we can take our customers who choose monthly billing, we can wrap 
those monthly contract those monthly billers up into 12 month contracts send them out to a company like pipe or capchase and this is all automated they will return back to us a whole year worth of cash for that monthly biller less whatever the um the rate is for it so typically around you know 7 to 9% to start so that means that we're paying 7 to 9% financing on that instead of the 15 to 20% discount we give our customers for the same cash. Okay, so let me just stop you there. So the reason that you're doing this is because you want the cash up front to cover your ad spend, is that correct? Yes, because if you can get 12 months of cash up front, you may be able to cover your entire customer acquisition cost on day one. Okay. Which means- so, But this is yes. all, this is sort of all behind the scenes that so the customer doesn't, doesn't know or care about any of this. Correct. Is that correct? Okay. Correct. So they're just, they're happily paying their $59 a month Yep. and you're, you're using this, you're taking this and say, Hey, listen, I got a new customer that my, my metrics are showing that this customer is worth 1500. I want to, you know, I want to sort of borrow off of that at future annuity. Yep. Um, and they're paying you so that you're getting paid say 1500 for that and you're able to um get your customer ac acquisition costs right at the time you know, basically on that front end ticket when they come in and they purchase right uh, and let's say it costs you 1200 or something like that to to get the customer which so i'm sure you, you can get down mm -hmm. so then you could reinvest that cash into acquiring your next customer yep okay okay that makes sense so what is your customer acquisition cost now so all customer acquisition costs are blended, right? Across different channels. Our mm -hmm. customer acquisition costs in our unpaid channels, our, uh, our marketing costs are less than a hundred bucks a customer. And in our paid channels, we're driving that down to $400 per customer is our target in the next couple of months here. Okay, so that's when you're saying in three months, it, what is it at now? Why couldn't you scale it now? Because it's higher than that. $400 is our target. Okay. And I don't want to scale it until we can hit that target. And the reason why 400 is the target is because that is the point at which we can recover our CAC in the first year. And I know if you talk to, you know, David Skalk, he's been, you know, a lot of companies are recovering their CAC in more like 18 months these days, mm -hmm. as opposed to in 12 months. But we're trying to grow our business without too much outside investment. And so we need to be able to recover our CAC more quickly. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So um, now 400, 400 is, is the number um, that you can essentially scale. Like, so what are you covering it with 400? We're covering our marketing costs. That's our marketing costs. And then on top of that, we have our sales process. So I, I cover that separately, but it's marketing and sales. Okay. So when a customer comes in through marketing, um, we do have inside sales reps who take those as leads and do two, we have a two call close. And after the second call, the salesperson steps out and then the one-time setup fee kicks in to cover the cost of onboarding. And Our how is... conversion rate on the first call is 50%. Our win rate on the second call is 95%. So once we're in the sales impressive. process, we have a really yeah. high uh, confidence that we'll win the deal. If they're qualified. Okay. okay. And so how these companies, these agencies that you're working with, you mentioned two, you have one that's do, doing YouTube, just YouTube and um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Facebook. 
then the other one is just doing just doing conversion rates on their work or on your on your landing pages or what are they doing conversion rate optimization on our landing page so the way we're starting with them and i actually think that this is a brilliant sales move on their part the way we're starting with them is that they reviewed our website and said, hey, here are a bunch of things that we just know from best practice that you should be doing. Like, we don't yeah. even need to test these. These are things mm-hmm. that you should be doing. This was a cold email from them or what? No, I did a, I did a search for CRO okay. Okay. companies. Okay. And so we have made those changes. We're now going to be running the campaign into this new landing page so that we can get new benchmark numbers. And then the agency will come in and start to optimize off of that benchmark. This I thought was great because a lot of the, they're going to get, we're going to get a huge benefit off of this work that we did ourselves based on their recommendations. And they aren't really taking credit for it, but they're going to use it then to actually win the business afterwards. Okay. Who are these guys so we can give them a shout out? They're called site tuners. Site tuners. Okay. Mm-hmm. And these, these are the guys that do the... Um, conversion rate optimization on your sales pages, right? Yeah, yeah. And the person we talked to there, his name is Martin Grief. He's the CEO, the owner of it, although it's a pretty big firm. And I, I mean, their sales process was remarkable. Not only did he give us all this information during the call, but he also sent me a book he wrote. I have it on my desk right now. It's called Relationship Marketing in the Digital World. And mm-hmm. so all of this is before we ever even become a customer, right? This is all through the sales process. It's wow, pretty remarkable. That's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. And and so how do you know that you're going to, like, I mean, what gives you the idea that you're going to reach your 400? I mean, where where are you yeah. at now exactly? So all So there are really two main levers there's there's a third lever which is the price that you pay per ad but that's not as much in our control there are two main levers number one is the conversion rate on the ads the click-through rate on the ads so what percentage of people who actually watch the ad click through to your landing page and then the second Mm -hmm. is the conversion rate on the landing page what percentage of people go to the landing page and actually book an appointment with you and start the sales process those Mm -hmm. are the two pieces we know that if we cut each of those in half that we've easy, that we've more than gotten down to $400. So we mm-hmm. know that we don't even need to cut them in half to get to 400 and we have working with both of the agencies, we have a pretty good idea and you know our own benchmarking research, pretty good idea of the you know, pretty so, good confidence so, that we can cut them in half. Where 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 are you at now for CTR on the on the ads? CTR in the ads right now is just under 1%, which is horrible. Right, horrible. right. Okay. Yeah. So we're confident I've, we're going to be able to double that. No, I've got some ads on Google that are getting 3%. So you, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that was like within a week I was getting. So I'm sure you can yes. tweak that. How about landing page conversion? 2%. So 2%, 2% book which an appointment is off the landing that's, page. That's not bad. You that's know, actually, good. so 2% is, is not bad, but companies that do better especially direct response greatly outperform that two percent is actually more that's like the, for the sa- the sale though not not talking about like uh, for your lead magnet or something right well but, we're yeah. we're not talking about conversion to a sale we're just talking about conversion from the landing page to book an appointment we okay. should be able to do much better than two percent yeah that could that could be because yeah, you. But even though because your sales process, the conversion rates are so high there that you're doing okay. But you should be able to even get that up to ten or fifteen percent, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, we've had 
agencies tell us we should be able to get anywhere between two and five X what we're currently getting on the conversion rate on the landing page. All we need is two X. So yeah, we feel good about okay. that. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, great. So it it sounds like you're you're well on your way. I'm getting to the top of the hour, so I want to respect your time and make sure I can drop you off to your next to the rest of your day. One question I like to to conclude with is if you could tell yourself now back at when you're sitting there at the trade event starting this, all the lessons that you've learned, what would you tell yourself uh, at that point? Go back and tell yourself in time. Build an audience now. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs say this. I wish I had built an audience earlier. And because companies tend to be focused, entrepreneurs tend to be focused more on building the product first and then going out and figuring out how to sell it. We did do some of that early on. And, you know, we were challenged a little bit by not knowing exactly who we were going to be targeting within our our market. But instead of building, working on an email and then very organically building up the mailing list, I wish that we had gone out and really, really focused on building that audience from day one. Okay. And when you say that is, are you talking about an email list? Ultimately an email list because you do want to own your own audience, but I would start on social media channels to attract people like who Facebook could then convert over to like the, that. yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, it's LinkedIn, to be honest. Yeah. We, okay. we do a lot of posting on LinkedIn on our personal, personal pages because nobody, you know, people follow the business, but it's, they don't get nearly the same exposure as, you know, you do personally. So we spend a lot of time crafting messages through LinkedIn and really, really, really building those relationships over time so that they do things like join our mailing list and become part of our owned audience. Okay, so for you, the audience funnel really is at LinkedIn. You consider that top of funnel and your mm-hmm. LinkedIn page. And so let's say that's where you concentrate your energies on building that and then you get them to try and sign up to the email list. Yes. That's mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Yes, and that's our, that, you know, that's an unpaid funnel for us but yes yeah great okay thanks so much don for your time i learned a lot myself i'm sure our listeners did as well obviously we'll have jotful in the show notes anywhere else anywhere else you'd like to send our listeners yeah i mean just check out our homepage. we're at j-o-t-t-f-u-l.com love to see you over there and, and you can and- use the new chat widget Happy to okay, talk to you. That you built out yesterday. That we built out yesterday, yeah. It's yep. going to be perfect. Everything's going to be perfectly <laughs> uh, aligned with all, all of your questions. And and to reach you, best way, LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn, absolutely the best way to reach me. But if you contact me on LinkedIn, do send a personal message and let me know how you heard about me so that I actually accept your invitation. Okay, great. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much again for your time. Really enjoyed Thanks. it. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <music>